I went to reform school. That's right. I'm a rabbi in the reform movement. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. On this episode, we discuss the reform movement, the most liberal of the Jewish streams in America. It's quite a different story than Orthodox or even conservative Judaism. The reform movement began in Central Europe at the end of the 18th century as a Jewish response to the Enlightenment. As Jews began to leave their cloistered ghettos and engage with the Christian world, many Jews began to emulate Christian practices. Rabbis of all stripes worried that Jews would leave Judaism altogether and so began to formulate various ways to keep them in the fold. Orthodox Judaism was one such response. We talked about Orthodox Judaism in a previous podcast, but in essence, it is a counter-reformation. It arose in response to the reforms that these more radical rabbis began to enact in the 18th and 19th century. In short, most or both Orthodox and Reformed Judaism sought ways to modernize traditional Jewish practice. They just headed in opposite directions. In 1808, Napoleon Bonaparte's brother Jerome emancipated the Jews of Westphalia, a part of Germany that he ruled at the time. The following year, a man by the name of Israel Jacobson, who was not a rabbi, opened a synagogue in Kassel where, for the first time, prayers were recited in German and a German-language sermon was also delivered. In 1810, Jacobson inaugurated another synagogue in season, which featured hymns sung in German with an organ accompaniment. To Jews who for centuries prayed solely in Hebrew and forbade the use of musical instruments in prayer, these were radical reforms. These events marked the beginning of the reform movement in Germany. At first, it was solely a liturgical revolution. Jacobson and others felt that if Jews could pray like Germans, they would remain Jews. Classically trained Jewish musicians were hired to write choral pieces for worship, featuring grand pipe organs and, in time, mixed choirs. These composers, who were not allowed entrance to the great symphony and opera halls of Europe, because they were Jewish, would stand outside the windows and carefully listen to the music being played or sung. Then they would apply these melodies to Jewish prayers. We still sing some of these hymns in our worship today. While Israel Jacobson enacted his liturgical reforms in Germany, the nascent reform movement was also taking root in America. In 1808, Charleston, Isaac Harvey introduced the first reform prayer book in America. His reforms split the congregation. In time, though, Harvey established the Charleston Temple as the first reform synagogue in North America. While not using Harvey's prayer book today, it is still a vibrant congregation and worships in its beautiful colonial era synagogue building. The theological revolution followed the liturgical one. In 1844, a rabbinical conference was held in Brunswick, Germany. This was the first ever gathering of Reform rabbis. 
convened by Rabbis Ludwig Philipson and Levi Hertzfeld, they drew together 25 sympathetic rabbis. Philipson argued that there had to be a theological reform as well as a liturgical one if Judaism were to survive. As he said, and I quote, the issue before us is concerned with the entire content of our religion, which we must present and strengthen in its purity in order to rescue it from deadening rigidity on the one hand and from bemumbling unfaith on the other. In 1885, Rabbi Kaufman Kohler of New York convened a conference of Reform rabbis in Pittsburgh. Chaired by Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, the founder of the first Reform Seminary in the United States, Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, the convocation brought together the East Coast more radical rabbis along with the more moderate-leaning rabbis of the Midwest. Together, they created what is known as the Pittsburgh Platform, the first statement of Reform principles in the United States. Its principles clearly separated Reform Judaism from Orthodoxy. They formally remained in effect for almost 50 years. The platform still exerts great influence over Reform Jews today. The Pittsburgh Platform rejected Kashrut, the Jewish dietary laws, priestly dress, the divine authority of the Bible, and the special status of the Jewish people. It also rejected the hope for the Messiah being a descendant of David and instead embraced the hope of a coming messianic era, an evolving golden age. Furthermore, the reformers rejected the establishment of a homeland in Palestine, a movement that was just getting started at the time. It affirmed the moral code of the Torah and exhorted Jews to live in harmony with their Christian neighbors, working together to bring about a utopian age which they felt was at hand. They also affirmed the immortality of the soul while simultaneously rejecting bodily resurrection as well as the concepts of heaven and hell. Finally, and this is critical for later Reformed Jewish thought and actions, the rabbis in Pittsburgh emphasized the importance of social justice, emphasizing the prophetic voice over Mosaic law. Of course, the pendulum swung back in later years. Since 1885, the Reform movement has come to embrace Zionism, include more Hebrew and traditional liturgy in its prayer books, explore the nuances of Kashrut, and still affirmed its commitment to tikkun olam, social justice. The Reform movement has also redefined the meaning of who is a Jew. Unique among the streams of Judaism and exclusive to the Reform movement in the United States, Reform Judaism states that if either parent is Jewish and the child is raised as a Jew, then the Reform movement and its rabbis consider that person to be a Jew. This causes problems when a Reformed Jew marries a conservative or orthodox person, especially when a more traditional rabbi is officiating at the wedding. That rabbi would be bound to require that person to undergo a formal conversion, even though he or she has lived as a Jew for his or her entire life. The problem also extends when a Reformed Jew under this category desires to make Aliyah to immigrate to Israel. The Reform Movement is also the most egalitarian of the streams of Judaism. In 1971, Rabbi Sally Prizend was ordained as the first female rabbi of the modern age. In the 1980s, 
the prayer book was rewritten to include gender-inclusive language. And in the 1990s, openly gay and lesbian rabbis were ordained. Kashrut is a good example of the changes within Reform Judaism. The Pittsburgh platform rejected Kashrut as a relic of a bygone era. In recent decades, though, more and more Reformed Jews, and especially their rabbis, have adopted a modicum of kashrut, perhaps refraining from eating pork and shellfish, and some even keep strictly kosher. Reformed Judaism recognizes kashrut as a distinctive Jewish practice, and today, rather than eliminating the practice, affirms that this distinctiveness is a positive trait and a way to serve God. The hallmark of Reformed Judaism has always been its prophetic mission. In effect, Reformed Judaism is known for being involved in the larger world. We will talk more about that after the break. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Before we return to our discussion of Reformed Judaism, I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Please remember to rate and review it, as well as previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, and other great podcasting sites. Also, you can like us on Facebook. Reformed Judaism has always defined itself as the fulfillment of the prophetic mission. The eighth and final plank of the Pittsburgh platform reads as follows. In full accordance with the spirit of the Mosaic legislation, which strives to regulate the relations between rich and poor, we deem it our duty to participate in the great task of modern times, to solve on the basis of justice and righteousness problems presented by the contrasts and evils of the present organization of society. Reformed Jewish leaders worked with black leaders to found organizations such as the NAACP and the Leadership Council on Civil Rights. For many years, Kivi Kaplan, a vice president of the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, the synagogue arm of the reform movement, was also the national president of the NAACP. Jack Greenberg, a reformed Jew, was its lead attorney. Along with Roy Wilkins and A. Philip Randolph, Arnie Aronson co-founded the LCCR. The Washington office of the reform movement was the place where the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were drafted. Many of the Freedom Riders who traveled the South in support of voting rights were rabbis and laity from the Reform Movement. Some even lost their lives. In the South, the Reform Movement's open approach to Jewish law and ritual was ideally suited for the Southern Jew. But some Southern rabbis, such as in Atlanta or Meridian, Mississippi, saw their congregation's buildings firebomb due to their support for civil rights. In later years, the movement played a major role in drafting other legislation, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1983 and the Civil Rights Act of 1991. This prophetic spirit continues today. The reform movement is intimately involved in today's struggles for voting rights, climate change, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and many other important issues. Yes, these are liberal causes, but the reform movement is mostly made up of liberals. Reform has often been accused with good cause of promoting social justice causes at the expense of ritual and learning. Over the past decades, the reform movement has placed a greater emphasis on Jewish learning, the inclusion of traditional prayers, 
egalitarian translations, and has also advocated for a more inclusive Israeli society. Today, the movement is much more balanced in its approach, all but while being intimately involved in the larger world. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. You can listen to and rate previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or other popular podcast outlets. Also, you can like us on Facebook and Instagram. We're going to hold off on talking about the final stream of Judaism, Hasidic Judaism, for a week so that we can highlight a very solemn day in the Jewish calendar, Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, a day of fasting in memory of the destruction of both the first and second temples. Have a great day, and remember, how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity. Till we see each other again. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this has been Torah for Christians. Thank you.